Is your refrigerator running? You better follow it because it's headed here where the money is. Well, Joel, busy week for us. A lot of articles to talk about right off the headlines. I think we got some important ones to talk about, some interesting ones. Uh, right off the top of the bat, we have one talking about China and uh, its demand for not only oil, but also food as well. Growing population, uh, they spend a ton of money on oil and gas and um, mining acquisitions and mergers over the last 10 years. I think they said about $200 billion. So we're turning to a Bloomberg article here uh, talking about how agriculture, food, and uh, different items as far as feeding their growing population are concerned. That's their next focus. And you saw that last year with uh, one of the biggest ones was Smithfield was acquired uh, out of the U.S. And I'm, I'm thinking this is going to be a pretty big deal for them because uh, pork, I think that's their biggest thing that they need to address. Three quarters of the meat that they eat in China mm -hmm. is pork. He'll, uh, they, they fulfill that. And so China uh, making moves, I think, what did they say, $12 billion so far or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there's so much demand. And I think a lot of people look at these numbers and are worried, is China going to start taking over and buying a lot of food product? Are prices going to start rising? But that's not the case, I don't think. And, you know, what the big worry originally was, was you mentioned the metals. And by the end of this decade, China will be consuming 47% of copper worldwide, 71% of seaborne iron ore, 48% of aluminum. And if you look at when they, the big booms in the early 2000s, you did see prices move, but it's supply and demand. And with you, when you're talking about agriculture and foods, you have governments that are going to be subsidizing for food products. Mm -hmm. You also have a lot of tariffs in place. So it's really an internal issue, and I don't think it's going to reflect the population or the worldwide uh, food prices. Uh, you know, in China, this is a big worry because about one-third of all household income goes towards food. Yep. In the United States, it's under 10%, so that is a big worry. And, you know, agriculture and really controlling wheat and rice has been an issue that China has been focused on for hundreds and hundreds of years. So this is nothing new. They always are looking to secure and be self-sufficient in food. What could happen, what you could see uh, moving outside of the Chinese border would be them actually going out and trying to buy land yeah. and start growing in case they don't have the actual arable land or water resources internally. So I don't think this is something that people should look at and say, wow, this growth is really phenomenal. They have so many mouths to feed. Food prices are going to start soaring. I don't think that's the case, but it is something to worry internally for China. Yes, because they have I think they have 29% of the population in the world and only 9% of arable land. Kind of a disconnect there and even less potable water. So uh, something for them to be worried about. And uh, like you said, I don't think prices will skyrocket, but I do think it will influence a little bit. As far as other companies that they could acquire, obviously pork is very, very highly needed. Mm -hmm. um, they've started to do some things to compete with Cargill and uh, Archer Daniels Midland as far as uh, grain trading is concerned, so maybe some competitors will crop up internally to help diversify a little bit from some of those major major food traders. So uh, our next headline, we're going to turn to um, we're going to turn to Vox because we're talking about Solar City. Huge move the other day. Uh, their headline is Solar City is trying to become the Apple of solar power. Yeah, Apple. The Apple of solar power. Uh, lately, I don't know if you want to be con considered an apple of anything, but they've, they've made a nice run and uh, been very innovative in their time. Haven't seen any new products come out, but SolarCity continues to, to change the game. Their latest move, $200 million acquisition, possibly $350 million if the company hits some incentives. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's uh, Silevo, I think is how you pronounce that. Uh, hasn't really produced anything yet, but they're talking about opening a one gigawatt solar panel facility up in Buffalo. And uh, so becoming a lot more integrated, I love the move. What about you? 
I think it's a move that they definitely needed to make. And going back to Apple, I mean, their share price is actually creeping back up. Yeah, it is. It's, high, been, so. it's been pretty sneaky um, lately. So, you know, I, I don't really buy this um, Apple model. I think it's more of a SunPower model. They're yeah. finally getting vertically integrated. And by vertically integrated, it means they're actually manufacturing the panels, they're installing them, and then they also will have the end user, which mm -hmm. for them, they're the biggest residential solar installer. Um, you know, this is good because they're targeting targeting this company because they're going after higher efficient panels. Right. Also, there a lot of their purchasing right now. A lot of panels they're buying are from China. There's tariffs in place from 18 to 30 percent. So they're moving. This will be one of the bigger manufacturers in the United States. So they're moving it here. And the biggest thing about efficiency is these contracts are for 20 years. And if you look at how you're supposed to evaluate, uh, you know, companies that are in the residential solar, you look at retained value. And basically, what retained value is the present value of 20 years mm -hmm. of cash at today's or brought back to today's value. So when you're looking at that, that's only part of the actual retained value number. The other part is looking at, is this, is this customer going to re-up this contract? Mm -hmm. So by actually getting more efficient panels, I think you have a stronger case to actually collect those, those, the, the money over the long term. Because if you have one of the cheaper panels now, 10 years from now, what if your, the panels start getting worn out? What if mm -hmm. the efficiency starts dropping a lot more right. than they expected, that retained value would just plummet. And as investors, that would be very worrisome. So I really like them actually getting more efficient, really getting vertically integrated so they can control more of their supply chain. I think it's a good move for them. And mm -hmm. you know, this is not a big deal, $200 million, yeah, so potentially $350 million. But look at what it did to their stock price when they announced it. It went up you know, 18%. A it's lot of wild. people were really hoping that this would actually come about. And I think it helps the company. Um, overall, being more competitive with some of the other um, solar providers. Yeah, you mentioned SunPower. They're going to be right around the same efficiency, 23 to 24% next year uh, as far as SunPower. And then uh, SolarCity hopes to get this plan up in the next couple of years, up to 10 gigawatts eventually. And that's about a quarter of all installed solar panels last year. Uh, so this company is really making a lot of moves. And I'm a little worried for First Solar because they're not, they're not big in the high efficiency game. And now companies are getting into the, the manufacturing game to compete with them here in the US and North America. So uh, yeah, some power in, in Solar City, I think, are really separating I, themselves. Yeah, I really like them. I mean, they're diversifying their company. Yeah. Where, you know, First Solar, they're basically going to be that utility guy. Right. And they're going to have really limit their spots. They're going to be in Nevada. They're going to be in California. They're going to be in uh, Arizona where they can get a lot more sun. But exactly. these other companies are really diversifying and being able to target a lot bigger uh, customer base. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even up in the, in the Northeast and Northwest and maybe Canada one day, we'll see. But uh, that turns us to our third headline and third and final headline. Uh, we look at um, LA going Times. to the LA Times across the United States to talk about um, some energy usage. Power hogs feed while you sleep. Looking at devices in your homes, surprisingly enough, TV set boxes rank pretty highly up there as far as power usage among smaller appliances in your home. A lot of people don't realize that, and a lot of people have multiple set-top boxes in their home. I think I read in the article, 225 million of these floating yeah. around the United States. And the cable companies really don't have the incentive to reduce the power that they consume because they're not paying your power bills. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the biggest thing. And this is ridiculous. If you look <laughs> at, at the article, it even talks about how much energy that actually is. That's four full-time nuclear reactors running a, a, a 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, yeah. just to power cable boxes. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. And if you're in, paying, if you're in Southern California and you're paying electricity, 
it's about $8 a month per this box. Yeah. I mean, at that rate, why not just get rid of Comcast or whatever uh, whatever cable provider you have and just go with Netflix where you don't have to pay for the box because yeah, exactly. that basically pays for it. It's just, it's, it's just uh, really phenomenal how much energy these are actually using. And like you said, there's no incentive to really do anything about it because you know, maybe a utility company will come out and, and look at it, but as far as a uh, cable provider, they don't care because they're not paying for the bill. It's a costly creature comfort, and uh, even when it's not running, so they're talking about, you know, it, it using that much energy just sitting idle. I've noticed that my box turns itself off completely when I shut off my TV, so I don't know if it's saving me any power. I doubt it. I doubt uh, it. But yeah, eight bucks tacked on to the hundred bucks or more that t people typically pay for internet and, and cable. Uh, it's a little steep, and people don't really think about that. They it's, think, hey, my dishwasher or my water heater are driving up the energy prices. But no, you look right at your set-top box in your family room, your children's room. Who knows? No, I, I, you know, there's the EPA is trying to have new proposals to cut greenhouse gas emissions. And this, I think this is really a market that is untapped, and there's going to be a lot of growth mm -hmm. in actually energy efficiency. I mean, there was a report last year looking at 2012 numbers that around 60 to 80 percent of electricity generation is wasted in the United States from these dead appliances that are sucking energy when right. they're not being used. So I think uh, energy efficiency is really going to be an area that is going to grow and really untapped right now. Yeah, I think we talked about uh, using 20 to 30 percent more energy by 2040. Uh, but we're trying to make it a little cheaper. I think Obama came out said he wants 8 percent cheaper uh, electricity costs. That's going to be tough because uh, nuclear power plants aren't being created anymore because they're so expensive. You talk about just set-top boxes needing four nuclear reactors. That's incredible. So I'm going to continue to maybe uh, plug, unplug that every now and then. Don't watch too much TV as it is, but I guess that doesn't even matter. So it's a little bit unfortunate. Always unplug. Always unplug. That takes us to our stock quiz. I think we All have right. a nice little segue. Um, I'll go first. I'm going to pitch it to Joel. I'm going to ask you which home appliance uses the most energy. So I'm going to go with some smaller ones that people use typically every day. Not We've the got desktop or not the, the cable box? No, not the cable box right. I'm gonna, and not the water heater because that's the obvious answer for uh, generally the most uh, energy usage. But I'm going to go with the coffee maker, clothes iron, vacuum cleaner, and hair dryer. So these are real, real small. Yeah, these are just little tiny ones, but people use them every day, so we'll see uh, see how much energy they're uh, You know, for some reason, I just want to go with that hair dryer because it can produce a lot of heat on there. and. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with uh, D. I'm yeah. gonna go D right off the bat. What are you now? Four for four then? Is, Is that, that correct? Four for four. Yeah, so uh, the coffee maker right. uh, starts on the low end, 900 to 1200 watts. Clothes iron, 1000 to 1800. Vacuum cleaner, right around the same, uh, 1000 to 1440. And uh, hair dryer, 1200 to 1800 watts. Uh, good thing, good thing those aren't always plugged in. Those are always. That's something that people always unplug. You yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Curling there. irons, well, hopefully they unplug it. I, my girlfriend doesn't always, so i got to get on her about that. Uh, hopefully Burn, burning down the house over here. A, a home insurance. <laughs> a little bit. All right. Uh, well, I'm going to go to my stock quiz. And this is, you know, we talked about the Bakken finally getting to that one million uh, barrel per day yep. mark, and it finally officially is there. So I'm going to ask you of EMP drillers, where is the most money going into, according to, or two different shell plays? Okay. So, the most um, exploration and production money going to shell plays this year, and I have four different shell plays: the Bakken, the one we just mentioned, yep. the Eagleford, the Permian Basin, or the Mar Marcellus. The most money going into one shell play for this year. Interesting. Uh, Eagle Ford, a lot of money is being spent there over the last four or five, six years. 
Bakken growing like wildfire. But everyone's looking at the Permian. I'm going to go with the Permian. Ooh, that's a, that, that also is correct, just yes. barely. 20, 22.4% of EMP CapEx is going to the Permian Basin. Eagleford, 22%. So Texas. Just barely, barely edging it out. And about then, 50% then, just going to two fields in Texas. Just two fields. And then uh, the Bakken's about 16%, and the Marcellus, natural gas player, yeah. not a whole lot of EMP money going there, but still about 10% yep. going there. Uh, what I think is really interesting about uh, following the money is finding drillers that are levered to onshore Mm -hmm. plays in the United States. And you know, there's a couple of players that not a whole lot of people know. Helmerick and Payne, 82% of their rigs are exposed to U.S. onshore drilling. Company that, as these more money keeps getting spent, yep. I mean, this is a record $80 billion this year being there. These are companies that are going to benefit. Another one that I really like is Precision Drilling. This is a company that has a lot of high-spec rigs. And by high-spec, that means they have more horsepower where they can drill unconventional drilling, which is the fracking and horizontally mm -hmm. drilling uh, into, into the, uh, different well bores. They are also uh, very, very levered to the Permian Basin. So if the most money's going there, they have the best rigs. Yep. They're very levered there. I really like, uh, you know, those I think would be great companies to start following where the money's going and looking into some of these players. Yeah, Helmark and Payne, definitely. We talked to Floyd Wilson at Halcone, and he mentioned them uh, very specifically as using them for a long time, even at previous companies that he started. So uh, maybe they're working with a little bit of the smaller drillers, but um, a lot of money being spent. And there was Halcone's up in the Bakken and uh, trying to develop in the Utica. Not as much as they were at yeah. when they first started there, mm -hmm. but- the, A little bit in the Eagleford. A little bit in the Eagleford. So yeah, a lot of money uh, changing hands, billions and billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, definitely some ones to look at. What's, uh, that brings us to our mailbag. We got two questions. Uh, first off, for the viewers and listeners, yeah. Send us questions. Uh, email energy@fool.com. Email. You could also Twitter, uh, TMF Energy. Just uh, bring them, bring them along, That's and right. we'll, we'll answer them on the show. Uh, so our first question we have is from Jonathan Curry, and it's: Do you have an opinion on Oceaneering International? Basic premises: This seems to be a picks and shovels play in the deep water drilling. Given a recovery rate for rigs forecasted for 2015, buying into Oceaneering seems to be a play without having to bet on any particular hole or seabed. So, you know, they're asking, is this a play for deep water drilling? What do you yeah. think about oceaneering? Well, I think he's spot on with the picks and shovels argument. Uh, just like the gold rush in California, those guys are the ones that made out like bandits because they're not so reliant. Mm -hmm. if, if the company's drilling, they rent their equipment, buy their equipment, and then even if the field goes under, their equipment's still still on the books. So uh, I like Oceaneering International. Uh, they do the remote operated vehicles, ROVs, uh, reduces companies' manpower, cost, they're more efficient, the safety's higher because you're not sending people uh, mm -hmm. under uh, under that intense pressure down in the in the seabeds, and they're also doing some sub some subsea equipment and hardware. Equipment. So I, I like them. I really do. They have a direct competitor with FMC Technologies. Uh, that's a big fool favorite over the last few years, and we saw them at the OTC conference in Houston. Huge booth, very impressive business. Uh, tons of equipment. Although Oceaneering seems to be operating a little bit more efficiently as far as debt levels and, and margins, and but uh, I think FMC is a little bit uh, better on return on equity, so shareholders look at that. But uh, yeah, I, I agree. If you're looking at offshore uh, energy, mm -hmm. it's a long time horizon here. 
and the equipment that they're using continues to be more and more sophisticated, and oceaneering's right there at the forefront. Yeah, I think Jonathan hit it by saying, you know, this is a niche picks and yep. shovel type company, but I think you don't have to worry about uh, rig recover rates recovering in sure. 2015. Yeah, that's for the actual offshore drillers, but the rigs are still going to be used, and if they're being used, they're going to be using this technology. Yep. So I don't think that's going to affect them like it would, you know, an ENSCO or a sea drill where they're actually renting out or leasing out the drill ships. Agreed. As the niche player, I wouldn't focus on really what's happening to those players. The ships will be used and the drilling will be there. They might get pinched, but I don't think a company like Oceane Oceaneering International will be getting pinched. And this is a, really, it's a segment that's growing. You mentioned their competitiveness in, mm -hmm. in, against some of their uh, other competitors, but in the deep water drilling, by 2030, there's estimated to be 14 to 16 million barrels a day drilled there. We're supposed to double production in offshore drilling, yep. deep water drilling in the next 10 years. So it's really a good uh, market and then being a good solid uh, operator too. Yeah, it's just, it's a good a good little buy. I agree. Offshore drilling isn't just the Gulf of Mexico, the North Sea, and Brazil it's anymore. Worldwide. Yeah, you've got the South China Sea, uh, even causing some political turmoil over there between all those different countries, China in particular, uh, Vietnam. And Vietnam, and then uh, off the coast of Australia, you've got the uh, East and West Africa now. Mm -hmm. It was just it was just one coast. Now they're tapping into both coasts. So uh, these kind of companies are going to be be highly regarded and, and well needed. So. Yeah, uh, but that's good. Let's go to the second question, also from Jonathan yep. Curry. So thanks a lot for sending him Big in. Big fan of offshore. Yeah, and he's got actually another offshore question. And this one is, in Norway, there's a company called Fred Olsen Energy, which pays a decent dividend, upwards of 10%, 11%, I believe. And it re recently uh, missed an estimate for a rig refurbished cost. Not to make, a, it's not a huge mistake right there, but uh, basically the question comes down to, we talk a lot about US, uh, US rigs or drilling companies. But a company like this that doesn't get a whole lot of coverage, is it worth actually investing in? Where does it compete mm -hmm. against some of these, you know, Houston-based or London-based companies? Yeah, um, I had to look this company up when he first brought it up with the question. So uh, that shows you right there that it's not heavily traded by people in the U.S. It's not on our markets, but it seems like a decent company. Uh, it pays a high dividend. I like scarily it. high dividend. I like high dividends. Yeah, eleven point seven, I think, was what I saw. Um, I don't, I'm not a big fan of that. I like high dividends, but I don't like the double-digit yields. You don't like uh, the seed drill? I don't like the seed drill yields, uh, although I do like seed drill a little bit because you were telling me that uh, Fred Olson has a lot older rigs. Seed drill has the newest rigs. It's a little bit more of a safety blanket there. So old rigs, high dividend, uh, worry me a little bit, although they are generating cash from operations, mm -hmm. just not as highly as uh, seed drill, only 2.3% compound annual growth rate over the last five years. Yep whereas Sea drill is generating 35% growth over that same time frame on cash from operations. Yeah. <clears throat> Even though they're spending it all on dividends, at least they're making it. Yeah, this is my take from the company. Of the five drill ships they have, they have one new, uh, new build. The rest are from the mid-1970s. <laughs> of the six jack-up rigs they have, one new build. The other five are from the mid-1970s. That's worrisome. What that means is you're going to have to do a lot of refurbishing yep. costs, and if they go overboard, uh, that's not a that's not a good uh, that's not something good about this company right. because they're going to be needing to either bring in those ships, retire those older ships, and then get into the new build market. However, they're not as debt heavy as a sea drill. No, so if you want to compare the two dividend players, so if you are a sea drill investor, I think sea drill can really withstand when there's an oversupply of ships where a company like Fred Olson will really get pinched mm -hmm. and really hurt. 
However, over a long-term downturn in oil prices, I think a Fred Olson having better, better, uh, not as much debt mm -hmm. that they'll have to pay off will actually outperform where C drill could get hurt since they are so levered towards the debt market. So that's kind of the trade-off I see there. Um, as an investor, I really like where offshore drilling's going. Oil prices, there's a lot of issues. There's a lot, if you look at just the cost of drilling almost everywhere and right. the end of cheap oil, you're looking at a long-term, uh, more expensive crude. You know, I don't think you're going to see a drop too low over the long term. So I still think sea drill would be, personally, a better investment than, yeah. than Fred Olson. Between OPEC governments needing a high oil price to maintain their budgets, or even the biggest companies in the world needing $80, $90 a barrel to even consider new projects, because projects are just becoming more expensive. All the low-hanging fruit's already taken for the most part. Um, I, I like sea drill a little bit more. Uh, but I think all the other companies in the industry are big fans of Fred Olson because everyone else is building new ships, over, oversaturating the market. Fred Olson's just standing, standing idly by, um, but maybe they'll get snapped up if somebody uh, has a lot of cash on the balance sheet. Who knows? Yeah, I agree. Let's, uh, let's, let's move on to the, the Twitter. Let's take it to the Twitters. We've only got two today. The first one comes from Breaking Energy, at Breaking Energy. How much hashtag energy will the 2014 World Cup consume? Obviously, we're in the midst of the first uh, group stage. Uh, it's completed. We're on to the second round of that. But not only is there a lot of uh, materials needed to build the stadiums, get the infrastructure ready, but you have to fly people there. Fans are coming from everywhere. Everyone's watching it on, on their high-energy high usage set-top boxes. So altogether, um, they're talking about 2.72 million tons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere mm -hmm. from the World Cup. And to put it into perspective, we tie it back to the Bakken, a million barrels of crude a day, would only power seven of the 64 matches, one day's worth of Bakken crude. So a lot of energy being needed here to power this World Cup, not just in Brazil, but globally. Uh, so I guess for the whole tournament, that would be, what, nine days yeah. of, of, of Bakken production? Which doesn't seem like a whole lot, but it is. It makes Harold Ham a little happy. And, and another comparison that, that they look at is, if you were to convert that into gasoline, uh, it would basically power 260 million cars and, and trucks, which is basically all the fleet that the United States has for a complete day. But guess what? This is this is interesting because <laughs> it's because just it's a fun putting, fact. Yeah. yeah, it's just a fun fact. They're saying, look how much energy this is using. But if people weren't watching the World Cup, they'd be watching one of their other shows. Uh, they would still be driving exactly. around. So the, the, the energy uh, usage doesn't really matter. It's nothing to really be worried about but it is a, a you know a fun fact just to throw numbers around and something as cool as the world cup and this is going to be the most expensive world cup yep. soccer event ever so it's just one more way to show the real costs not only what the cost to actually build it but all the side costs and and, and a lot of energy usage and and uh, greenhouse gas emissions well if uh bored elon musk had his way we just have six floating barge stadiums that could go from world cup to world cup i wonder if it would take more than 260 <laughs> Million or more than likely to tow those it? things around. However, many millions of, of gallons of gasoline. Yeah, we get we get some diesel pumping in those barges. Um, but yeah, like you said, people will watch anything else. So might as well be the World Cup. I'll be interested to see if any uh, climate change activists will be protesting the 2018 World Cup in in Qatar because the AC bills are going to be through the roof there. Yeah, they got a lot of natural gas. So <laughs> that's true. I'm sure that's what's going to be. They'll powering. be all right. So their greenhouse gases might be a little less. A little cheaper. A little better for the environment. To our final tweet and our final topic of the day, we're going to at CRED.org, C-R-E-D org. We're talking about Colorado fracking ban would hurt you and the 600,000 mineral owners that rely on oil and natural gas profits 
to pay their bills. Talking about a statewide fracking ban in Colorado would cost Boulder County $1 billion in just one year. Billion it's like, dollars. It's like New York. Uh, I don't understand why they banned it. Mm -hmm. They struggle with power prices in the, in the New England area, predominantly because New York has a lot of gas under there. They also use a lot of energy. They're so close to the Marcellus, but New York City and New York State just consume it all. So they're leaving Boston, Massachusetts, Maine, Vermont. They're leaving them out to dry a little bit with the high natural gas prices. And now if Colorado follows suit, there's some companies that are in serious uh, trouble here because the near Brara shale is really coming on in the last couple of years. And uh, Anadarko planned to invest $1.5 billion in that shale last year. Uh, Noble Energy wants 500 to 600 wells a year by 2016. So these are two companies that have put a lot of money and effort into this shale. And if Colorado brands fracking, the near Brara is pretty much a moot point. Yeah, I mean, what it comes down to, the United States is the only country that actually gives mineral rights for the people that own the land. And I think if they want to sell their mineral, mineral rights, they have that right. That's so right. I don't think that states really should be saying our state overall is not going to do it. Mm -hmm. It's fine if you do it every, all, elsewhere. Because in New York, it's really a lot of money from upstate New York that are making the laws right. and, and a lot of people in the south part that actually want to sell their mineral rights are stuck with the ban and you know they're still going to court now where they're looking at using zoning laws state to state or county to county uh, area to area to see you know if the actual statewide moratorium is repealed what's going to be um, the, the process after that and there's a lot of bickering there so you know I, I just think if, if you the United States gives you mineral rights you should be able to sell them. That is worrisome. I know people are saying, yeah, we're not sure on the science of this, you know, but recently I went down and visited T. Boone Pickens at his ranch. He has well bores going underneath his house. <laughs> so if, you know, he's, he knows more about energy than basically anybody out there. If he's not worried about horizontally drilling on his own property, yeah. I don't think that, you know, that should just show that a lot of people out there really don't understand the real science behind fracking, uh, horizontally drilling, and I think a lot of these worries are kind of overblown, and that's why you're seeing states go out, like New York, and ban fracking overall, and maybe Colorado. Yeah. And that's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of money. A lot of jobs. 600,000 people, a billion dollars for one county. That's, that's incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah. So that's a huge revenue. Education will suffer, infrastructure will suffer, and all because anti-fracking activists have a big media budget. It's interesting, but we'll continue following it. I'll be, I'll be highly surprised if Colorado bans fracking. I will too. So I don't think that will happen. Yeah, and I either. think New York will finally uh, repeal their moratorium. Retur yeah, they'll, they'll turn the page. There's so much natural gas. It'd be a smart move on their part. The Marcellus is, is very highly regarded in natural gas, and New York hasn't even tapped it. So the companies are chomping at the bit too mm -hmm. to get in there. I know that for a fact. So uh, that's it for this week. A lot of information that we covered. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and the video. For Joel South, I'm Taylor Markerman. Full on.